Hey, welcome to a question and answer session with Brad Jernigan. My name is Chris Abate, not Jerzak. 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 My name is Chris Aveda, and I've attended church here with Mike for about 10 years now. It's been a phenomenal journey. And Mike and I were talking the other day, and um, we just had questions. We were going back and forth, and what an opportunity to have Brad here to be able to ask a bunch of questions to a theologian who has actually started some of these questions, um, which is changing the thinking and... Um, really getting to the down to the deep stuff. So I'm looking forward to just having a great conversation with you today. My pleasure. This will be fun. It will be. Looking forward to it. So you ready to start? Ready. We just hit it hard. We call this a non-adversarial <laughs> interrogation. <laughs> <laughs> so what I have been, I've been reading, like a lot of people, Mirror Bible, um, coming to the kind of the new understanding of redemption and what, what Jesus has done for us and trying to get a pretty good grasp of the way I grew up was, you know, everybody sinned, they fall short of the glory of God. And then we have to somewhere be introduced to Jesus, accept Jesus, and then we get saved and then we're part of the people going to heaven and everybody else is not. And then we, our job is then to, and I've spent 11 summers, actually I probably spent six, 15 or 16 summers overseas on mission trips evangelizing. So as I began to understand this more and more, I want to really lock in to what the true gospel is, is like, what what's the process that, that people go through to get redeemed? And, and so my, I guess my first question is, is there a progression <clears throat> that we go through of, is it being, and, and we might have to define the terms, but being reconciled, being redeemed, but not knowing it, then beginning to realize it, and then getting saved or sozoed, where you actually begin to live the this life. My new understanding is that Jesus being the second Adam, when he died, he took all humanity with him to the grave. And when he rose again, he took all humanity and, and rose again. And so my question is, is that when people are born again? Mm. Because Paul doesn't ever teach, you must be born again. Now Jesus said it to Nicodemus, but then we never see it again later on. So. If all men died and all of their sin, like it says in First Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, that their sin is no longer held against them and that we're raised with him, then is everybody basically in? They just don't realize it. And is there a progression of beginning to realize it and figuring it out? And, and how does that impact evangelism? So all that. Well, only that. All that. <laughs> you got 45 minutes. Yeah. Well, let's start there. Please. So... Um, one thing I would caution against is thinking that we're going to completely get our minds around it or that we can slot it into a very specific order. And folks have tried to do this, but where I would come from on that is it depends on the passage sometimes and how these different words are used. And so I think we could start by unpacking that. And you asked about an order or progression. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to do it. And so you're going to see a lot of both and in this probably. So for example, I'll use the word saved or the Greek word you reference, sozo. Um, when were we, when are we, or when will we be saved? And this would be something um, that you can explore in the language of Paul, for example, where words that we connect with salvation, including justification, redemption, ransom, Reconciliation, all of these mm -hmm. kind of words. redeemed, yeah, reconciled. Um, and I'll unpack a little bit of that later. But 
that there is a, there, there is a really strong sense in Paul um, that that has happened in the past, is happening now, and will happen in the future. And here's how it works in his mind, and I think you can see it especially in Romans chapter 5, for example, where the, in, the, in the sense of the past, he really associates you were saved in the incarnation of Christ. And especially as that came to head on the cross as the climax, but already beginning with his incarnation, like his conception, when God and man unite in that one person in the womb already, um, it's kind of a done deal. But that done deal then becomes absolute and universal in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But even saying that, we could say even in eternity past, in the conversation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where John will say in, in the book of Revelation that the, the lamb is slain before the foundations of the mm-hmm. earth, or that all of this happened by the foreknowledge of God in, in a lot of the sermons and acts. But I would say it becomes, it becomes um, it manifest, in, especially in the incarnation. So in that sense, already saved. And so the idea that now Christ has become the new Adam. He has reheaded the human race. It's a head mm-hmm. transplant. Okay. And, and what that does is, although the God has never turned from humankind, we had turned from God. But now Christ becomes human to turn humankind back to God collectively. That's a past done deal. It is finished kind of thing. Um, there's also this present tense summons to respond. So teachers like Baxter Kruger, although he will say things like God has, um, has saved everyone, they just don't know it yet. He, he doesn't assume that means there's therefore no call to respond. It's like, of course there is. There's a summons to participate in that salvation. Mm -hmm. And so I was saved in the incarnation of Christ. I am being saved through my participation in that in the sense of it's actualizing in my life. And this especially, let's say we could talk about the born again experience, but I want to say if you have a born again experience, it also implies that you were in the womb um, uh, growing there, that, that prior to your, prior to your um, purposeful identification with Christ, it, there's already something going on. It, were you before Christ? You know, Christ was before you, taking you on a journey that culminated in this encounter. And so I, cring, I have cringe moments when people will say, well, when were you saved? And what they mean is, when did you pray this prayer? Whereas I see it as, well, I was saved in the incarnation. I'm being saved, and there's waypoints of <coughs> salvation that where I connect to it, where the truth of my being in Christ is becoming the way of my being in this life. But also in Romans 5, Paul will talk about saved in a future sense. And, and uh, I think we don't think about that very often. But what he means is ultimate salvation is in the resurrection. I have been saved from death in the resurrection of Christ. I'm saved from death in my encounter with him in this life. But it really doesn't ultimately play out until I, I receive my resurrection body at the final, mm-hmm. at the final day. So there is a past, present, and future uh, by the grace of God. Now we'll use other words. We won't do, go into all of them, but we'll use other words um, that we have often identified with With when I say the sinner's prayer or whatever. But that's not really, how, Romans 5 really focuses on, on the done deal aspect. So he will say, 
you were, when you, when you were weak, he died for you. When you were a sinner, he forgave you. And then, but, and we're like, okay, fine. We know that on the cross. He says, father, forgive him. But he goes further and he says, while you were his enemy, he reconciled you to God. What? Not he reconciled God to you. God never needed to be reconciled to you because God has never abandoned or turned from you. Well, how is it that we were reconciled to God already while we were enemies? Well, that's when Christ, as a man, vicariously comes home to the Father on behalf of the whole human race. When he vicariously, on behalf of all the human race, takes a baptism of repentance that he did not need for himself. But he does it, he does it as <clears throat> humanity. So I'm fascinated these days, I think like you are, by those already com- complete aspects. Mm-hmm. That means then the gospel is, is about letting people know this good news. Christ reconciled you to God. However, you may be still living in the alienation of someone who doesn't know the good news that's been accomplished for them. And as long as you don't. So I don't want to overplay this. There is a point to a summons to respond by faith so you can enjoy your inheritance. But I also want to say when the prodigal son left home, he was already a son and never ceased to be a son. He just did. He wasn't enjoying his inheritance. It's a quality of life choice. Same with the religious son. Yeah. As well. They're both slaving in a field. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, so for instance, in second Corinthians, you know, five twenty and 21, where it talks about that we are, that God reconciled the cosmos to the world. So I see that term as reconciled, that God made us right with him, that then there's that redeemed, he redeemed and brought us back. And then Paul goes on to say, and this is our ministry of reconciliation, which is be reconciled to God, yeah. not become reconciled, but, but wake up and realize it. Yeah, you have been, so be. And that's what we were talking about, that the truth of your being would become the way of your being. That the thing that is already true would now be actualized in your yes. experience. See, and I, I guess I wondered, is, is that where someone becomes sozoed? Meaning there's a difference between, wow, you're redeemed, you're reconciled, you're actually right with God, you just don't know it. Mm-hmm. You're actually created in his image and completely cleansed. You just don't know it. Then when you begin to realize that in that moment, that's when you move into that sozo, which is that abundant life. Because before that, you're living without the knowledge of who you actually are. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. Yeah. Um, we could use, use big words like ontologically. That has to do with being. In your being and in Christ's being, you already are. Okay. ontologically in him. <clears throat> but existentially, that means in my experience. Mm. Okay. Existentially, that I, I come into that truth through the revelation of the gospel. This is the gospel. It's this good news that says, here's, what, here's what's happened for you in Christ. Um, so there's no li- need to live in this alienation any longer. You can identify with with what's already been accomplished. The way Mike has taught it so many times is tell people what's already true about them. Mm-hmm. And that's what, to me, that changes evangelism. Yeah. From, <clears throat> I need you to make a decision to come over here to let me just tell you what's already true about you. You just don't know. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, I've been thinking a lot in the context of, of a 12-step recovery and that they've really nailed this in terms of what is the summons, because I, I, I think it's pretty clear in, in the New Testament, they're not only telling them, there is an invitation. Okay, but what's the invitation? And does the invitation change eternity for them? Or does it simply change what happens on earth for them? That's a good question. We should do that as a follow-up. Let me just say that I, what I've adopted or adopted and adapted as, as my summons these days, my, I will share about, about how Jesus Christ has revealed the love of God for us you know, and, and solved, solved everything. Um, then my invitation would be, do you, if God were like this, do you think you could surrender your life to his care? Like if he, if he's already done, and cause that's, a, that's the issue these days, I think is what, what we call sin. It would be really, it would be a life of self-will and we're calling them out of this life of self-will into a life of, of surrender to the care of a loving God. Um, so that certainly changes what today looks like for an addict, for example, mm. right? So the life of self-will <clears throat> is the path that leads to destruction. And I'm not talking help. I'm just like self, we're, we're mm -hmm. self-destructive. The, 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 the life of surrender to when you know God loves you and you, and you don't have to do something to make him love you. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, he's brought you in. You don't have to do something for him to bring you in. There's nothing you're going to do that will change your ontology. You're already, you know, but, um, but that life to, to say, okay, for this day, I'm going to surrender to his love will actually affect how I live yeah. and, and, and actually alleviate yes. the disease <clears throat> mm -hmm. that, that we're under. So let's, can we transition to yeah. that disease? Yeah. Okay. So one of the thoughts that Mike and I have talked about is, and I've heard Mike you know, teaches God just got him forgive. Yeah. So the difference between, so if God could forgive, why not just, okay, I just forgive. Why, why did Jesus actually have to die? Because my training and teaching has always been, well, there had to be a punishment for sin and therefore someone had to pay the penalty and the price. And yeah. therefore, instead of us, Jesus paid that penalty and price whether that was God doing that to Jesus or, but again, if God's all perfect, could he not just have absorbed it all and just said, it's all forgiven, we're all clean. Why did Jesus actually have to die? Because I feel like I knew that for years and years and years. And now with this understanding, like, I don't know if I can explain that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I used to be able to. Let's right, break I think that I can, but I want to hear. No, I think you're on. <clears throat> so, Let's break that into two parts. You, you had written the question in such a beautifully loaded way, one, the first part, why couldn't God just forgive? So there, even that, A, God can and does and has freely forgiven. For, forgive is, is, um, is not transactional. Forgiving is writing off the ledger or to use legal terms if we needed to. Forgiving can't involve punishment or it's not forgiving. Forgiving is a pardon <coughs> from right. punishment. So, so can God freely forgive? Absolutely. This was the point of Hosea. That's the whole message of Hosea, even in the Old Testament, that God is free to forgive without punishment or even without repentance. He says, 
He says, I, well, so he forgives us on the cross, but he was even doing that before the cross. He's, so the message of Hosea is this, I'm going to bring you such good news of forgiveness that that will generate the repentance. But it's, it's the kindness of God to freely forgive that generates repentance. It, 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 that's grace. So, so could God freely give, forgive? Yes. Why? But why couldn't he just forgive? Ah, that's another question. Ah, okay. <clears throat> when, a, when, a, when an addict, and I'm going to say we're all addicts in terms of self-will. We're addicts to self <clears throat> But let's use an explicit one. When an or to ad- self distorted distorted image of ourselves. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <clears throat> when willfulness, as if we can, auto- auto- can be autonomous. I don't need God. I'm independent. Okay. That's that's really a problem. So let's let's take a let's take a meth addict who comes in from the streets, and it's his first day in detox. And he, and he says, I, I just really think God hates me. And I'm like, oh, no, he doesn't hate you at all. Why can't, you know, can God forgive me? Oh, he already has. He's completely forgiven you for abusing mess as your, actually as your medication for your other deeper sufferings. Do we send the meth addict out at the door at that point? <laughs> like, no, he still has to be cured of his addiction. Yeah, okay. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So God can freely forgive, but more than forgiveness is necessary. And he does and he has. Yeah, he does okay. and he has forgiven, but okay. now there needs to be a course uh, a, a course of, of rehabilitation and restoration. So let, let's use another example. If, if that, let's say the meth addict took, um, was using needles maybe it's a heroin addict. he uses needles and he gets hepatitis and you know all this stuff so so now okay are you forgiven for using needles of course you are but but do we just leave the hepatitis untreated no we need to cure this and so this is the great this is the great stuff you'll get in the early church fathers but also george mcdonald so forgiveness is about you is about you are released from the guilt and consequences of the sin but we're not done here. We actually need to free you from the sin itself. Jesus didn't just die to save us from consequences. He died to save us from sin. He and so the, this therapeutic model where the great physician must come and not only forgive your sin, but heal it. Um, and, and that looks like transformation where the love of God actually frees me mm-hmm. from self-will. And, and leads me into willingness to surrender to the care of the loving God. Does that make sense? It does, but why death? Why, why Jesus dying for that? Okay, why Jesus dying? Well, or why does he, he just give us medicine? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, A, the medicine <laughs> is, is his blood, but that's a metaphor, Okay, right? So in the early church, they would say this, well, um, what, is, what is the problem? The problem is not only sin, but the problem is that the, the, the disease of sin is fatal. And so humankind has come under the curse of death. The wages of sin is death. Not the wages of sin is that God will kill you, but sin kills you. 
So See, death. I was always taught the wages of sin is death, which means eternal separation from God. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So it's death. <clears throat> okay. So what is God to do when he sees that the entire human race of his precious children have contracted the fatal disease of sin that does lead to death? He will save us from sin by forgiving us, but he also needs to save us from death. So then the answer to the question, why does Jesus die, is to, get, is to save us from death. And what does that mean? Christ needs to enter death. Well, let me put it this way. God needs to enter death to save us, to rescue us from the realm of death. But God can't die. So this is St. Athanasius and all the other guys around that. God can't die. So how is he going to enter death? Ah, he assumes a human nature that can die. So God becomes human so that he can enter the realm of death through death. In other words, the cross is a doorway into the house of Hades where he binds the strong man and plunders his goods. Or we could, so, so the question of why did Jesus need to die? To save us from death, to enter death, to descend into Hades, which is the Apostles' Creed. He descended into Hades or into hell or whatever, the, um, to get us out of there. Not only to rescue us from death, but to destroy death itself. Mm. So sometimes we've had this idea that the parable of the rich man and Lazarus describes the underworld and afterlife. And well, that's not the punchline. The punchline is that Christ crosses the uncrossable chasm and comes back from the place no one can come back from and brings a host of captives in his train. He, and so um, that is why, how the early church understood the necessity of Christ's death was to deal decisively with death. So we have this, um, um, even the Puritans got this. So John Owen, the great Puritan, wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Or in the Eastern Church liturgy, we will say, Dozens and dozens of times during our Easter service, Christ has trampled. Uh, Christ has trampled down death by death. In other words, by his death, he has crushed death itself, and fundamentally changed the nature of Hades into it's no longer a, death is no longer a destination. It's a doorway into the presence of God. So. Christ has fundamentally changed death through his death, and that's why he needed to go there. So it's sort of like this. Jesus smuggles God, because he's divine, okay. into the place God can't go. And, and Isaiah says when, when, when death encountered God down there, it's like, oh my goodness, I took a human, but I encountered God, and he blows it up. It's like the scene in Men in Black where the big cockroach eats Tommy Lee Jones whole. And you're like, oh no, he's dead. It's like, no, he's not. You can't kill God. But what happens when a God you can't kill enters death? It blows it up from the inside wow. forever. So death has changed. And that's what we're saved from. So Hebrews 2 will say this. It is, this is why he becomes human, to, to set us free from death and the fear of death through which Satan held us captive all our lives. And Athanasius will go on in the fourth century to say, and this is how we know Jesus is alive, not because of an empty tomb, but because his children are not afraid of death anymore. This becomes a big problem when Christians are afraid of death now. It's like, yeah, we don't know. 
We don't know. In those days, they prepared, they weren't afraid for it. They prepared for it. They, and they would face martyrdom with utter fearlessness, including the children. And like, how is that possible? It's, Jesus must be alive. What do you know? And then just people flocked to, into Christianity yeah. during the worst persecution. Wow. So <clears throat> that could take us a couple different directions. Mm-hmm. One, one of my questions is, okay, so why did that rule of death exist in mm-hmm. the first place? I mean, if God created everything, mm-hmm. how is it that these natural laws couldn't have changed that and just said this just doesn't exist? Did we create it? That, that we go down one way, which I'd like to go down. The other, the, other, the other path is, you said something that really fascinated me about when, when God gets smuggled into a place he can't go, he becomes human, and then he actually goes into death. And what happens when God goes into death? He blows it up. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. Um, and then he leads the captives out of Haiti. That, you said, that transformed death. Mm-hmm. It also had to transform Hades mm-hmm. and what that meant and, and that whole doctrine that we have because if you're not if you're a Christian and you're not afraid of death then you're also not afraid that you accidentally will go to a hell because I think there's a lot of Christians going I hope I die well mm-hmm. I hope I forg- ask forgiveness before I die yep. or yep. I'm not quite sure yep. but it, it appears that maybe in that early church it's like they just understood that this whole death thing's gone and there is no such thing as eternal torment or suffering. We just, so we have nothing to fear. It's like you said, death is a doorway to the presence of God. Just a doorway on the longer journey. Yeah. I think we should do your first question first. What was it again? It it, it goes back to, Oh, why, why death? How, how, yeah. Where did it come from? And why, if God set up the rules from Mm -hmm. the beginning of creation, I mean, was it just, is it a principle that had to be there or, or why? Yeah, yeah. How did death gain power? And how did it, who created death? Where yeah. did it come from in the first place? If That's easy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but let's explore the mystery. Okay. Okay. So some elements that I think we could get a handle on. One is that God created a universe that depends on it's, it's very being and life depends on his breath and our attachment to him as life. That's how he made it. All things, he created all things. In the beginning was the word. Yeah. Word was with God, word was face to face God. Nothing, Nothing exists, exists apart from He him. holds all things together. Right, okay. so that's fact one. Which also goes against any separation doctrine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Number two, he creates... He creates the, the, the real conditions for authentic love. And that means, authentic love means, he's, who was sharing this with me yesterday? He didn't just make us a screensaver. My friend Patrick over there. <laughs> that doesn't work. For authentic, for authentic love, which God need, God requires this to be part of his, his universe because he is authentic love, Free, freely chosen love. <clears throat> that means he creates the capacity to turn from that love. Without the capacity to turn from his goodness and from life itself, our love wouldn't be real. So, this is a problem. Yes, it's a mess. <laughs> 
because but it's a it's a calculated okay. risk. I, I must I will not create a universe where love does not exist or that universe will not be a theophany of me. It won't be an expression okay. of my being. So I'll create an expression of my being and that means now you've got you've got people who can love him and people who can turn from him. In turning from him, we unplug from life and being itself. And that's wow. where death enters. Wow. Okay. Paul Young, I think, is just, he's created this fascinating imagery in my head where it's like, I, I'm looking at the light. I turn from the light. The light doesn't turn from me. The light doesn't diminish. The light is still there. In fact, the light casts a shadow. But what happens in the shadow of my turning looks like death and self-destruction. And so when we turn back to him, oh, good. The, 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 ah, the light's still shining. What do you know? Turning away doesn't turn off the light. Turning back doesn't turn on the light. And that's kind of sometimes how our evangelism treated it. But really, it's like, no, he's never once turned from us. But wow, look at this thing. And so the fathers would talk about this. They would say, actually, evil isn't a thing. Evil is a negation of a thing. Evil is non-being. God is being. I'm connected to being. Okay. Evil is God nothing is more than unplugging from, from, be, from that. And, and so it's like, wow, how are we going to solve this? Well, we're going to rehead the human race with Christ and he'll turn us all back. And so, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So is that what you meant? I heard you say one time that mankind was driving himself potentially into non-existence. Yeah. So this would have been pre-Jesus, all men f f going away from God, and literally the entire human race potentially moving itself into Hades. Yeah, I mean, read the flood story, right? It, okay. In the flood story, which we've taken as this, like God's genocidal maniac who kills everybody because of, no, what it says is that, that humankind so lapsed into known being that they had made the world uninhabitable. It, he says, it's the same language as Genesis 1, God looked in the world and it was good. Okay. Genesis 6, God looks in the world and it was ruined. Ruined, and, it, and so good meant good for people to live in. Ruined meant uninhabitable. Wow. Okay. And so what God has to do is give the world a bath. And, um, and he gave them a long time. I mean, we could, you could have had a whole fleet of arcs with everybody on it, but they won't have it. Yeah, it's yeah, like we, 20 years to create. Right, and so it's right. like we don't, we don't have, you can't live in this place anymore. And the sin that's mentioned, it's not vague, it's men's violence made the, ruined the world to live on. And so God recreates, it's a recreation story in that sense. But then, um, but it's happening again, immediately, right? In, Mo, in Noah's own family, you see that this, 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 trajectory towards non-being, <clears throat> somehow the incarnation becomes necessary because this fatal disease that's taking us into non-being needs to be arrested and turned around and he does it. For and, all, once for all, for all time. Yes, but also, not but, yes, for all time and also in reality. So today, I'm not a good Christian. I'm just like not very good at this thing. Um, you might be, um, 
but I don't meet many people who meet the standards of, of Jesus Christ. But I can tell you this, over a billion people in the world at least identify with him. And of those people, if we didn't make Christ the standard, I want to all make a proposal. I hardly know you, but I bet that even if, if we set you as the bar instead of Jesus and the degree to which you identify with Jesus, I bet just if you were the bar, there would be no wars in the world, no rapes, no bank robberies, no murders, no. And I'm like, earth would almost be heaven if we only lived up to the Christ likeness in you. And I'm like, wow, Christ is is transforming the world. He has arrested the trajectory of non-being, even in our imperfection. It, now we know there might be more slavery in the world than there was when it was legal. But at least now we believe that's not good. We used to, 150 years ago, we'd use the Bible to justify yeah. it. And, and somehow, somehow Christ, or you've got, let's say, Hinduism, but it's not even, you know, it, it's not even, it's not even Christian, but Gandhi was reading the Sermon on the Mount every single day and, and adopting the ethics of Jesus. And, and so now you've got, you've got that whole movement. And, and at his funeral, they said this, they said, um, they said Gandhi was the most Christ-like man in the world. A Hindu said that. Christ-like, who's the, who's the standard there? Christ is the standard. It's like very fascinating. And, and uh, when, the, when the British vice regent went to him and, he, and he's, he said like, so where's this going? I mean, and, and Gandhi said, um, you know, if, peop, if, if, if people would adopt the, the, way, the Jesus way, Gandhi, if Jesus would adopt the Jesus way, that was, this would not only solve the problems of Britain and India, this would solve the problems of the whole world. Well, so even though we're terrible at it, I think not only once for all time in the, in the incarnation, but like, so I don't want to make it too abstract. Okay, I want to okay. say on the ground, he's changed the direction of okay. humanity. And we don't realize that because we didn't live before that. Yeah. So that, that kind of asks, makes me ask a question. Is there a fundamental difference between mankind or humanity pre-Jesus mm. and post-Jesus that we just don't know because we've only lived in the AD years versus the BC years? Yeah. Because there is this reconciliation, there is this Jesus, the incarnation, the death, resurrection, and all those changes. Mm -hmm. Was humanity's DNA different in essence? pre-Jesus, that something radically then happened after him? We just don't know it because we've not lived on both sides. And those very few people that did, did they experience that? that that's a difficult question. And so here's the, here's the answer that's sort of half-baked. And maybe together we, in here we can have an oven and we'll finish baking <clears> it. But I, um, I was thinking about that in terms of this. After Christ, you still have really vicious people. Mm -hmm. Before Christ, you have some very faithful people. I don't know that you'd see a DNA change, but one thing that's really, I think, settled in my mind is that before Christ, our conceptions of God were very Zeus-like, including Yahweh. Tribalistic, violent, um, 
like ultra powerful and willful that the God, the God before Christ is, um, if you take Zeus as your example, but most of the pagan gods and even, you know, the violent tribalistic versions of Yahweh. And then Christ comes along and he, he radically redefines God in cruciform, which means cross-shaped self-giving love kind of ways. And, 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 um, and somehow, um, I, I believe that we become like the God we worship. So if you're predominant, there's a trickle-down effect. When you image God this, this way, and you are the image of God in the world, then you act as his agent. If, that, if the God that most of the world believed in before Christ was a violent Zeus-like warrior into power, the trickle-down effect on the, on, on the whole world in how they act is going to reflect that God. That God reflects them in a sense, mm-hmm. but they reflect it. Jesus comes on, and, and, and it's not just that people who've heard of Jesus now define God as love. Here's the weird thing. Most people I meet now who don't know Jesus yet, I will ask them to tell me about God as they understand him. Who's the God of your understanding? And they are describing Jesus. They're describing the God of love. I think God is love. I think God's perfectly good. I think he's kind and he's caring and he's forgiving. It's like you're describing Jesus and you don't even know him. No, nobody before Christ would describe him that way, except maybe like a few people, Moses and David and mm-hmm, Hosea. Mm-hmm. And so while the DNA hasn't changed, I think the image of God has dramatically changed in a way that changes us. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's my gut okay. first answer. So if we go back to that other direction question, so if God mm. blew up mm-hmm. death yeah. and these Christians in the early century weren't afraid of death, mm-hmm. and that changed death, it changed Hades, or, or our thoughts of it. Um, and I think that was a big interesting turning point for me is I read part of that book, Hope Beyond Hell, mm-hmm. and began to go through all the different words of what is hell, what is eternity, eternal, how those were. But maybe you can just give us a thought of what did the early church believe on that? Okay. And, and, and what, what, what happened when God blew it up? And by the way, before we get there, so if all these people died pre-Jesus and mm-hmm. they, were, they were stuck in Sheol, would that be? Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, is that right? Well, I don't know what's reality, but like, because, because the Hebrew worldview was very thin on afterlife okay. uh, until between the Testaments when they picked up some theology from Babylon and the Zoroastrian. So the whole thing about an underworld and Hades and fire and all that. You're just not going to see that in the Old Testament, but they kind of adopt but some David of it. David talks a lot about Sheol. He does. And it, or some. When they, yeah, and it's kind of the realm of death, but, but even him, it's like sometimes it's a, just a gloomy place, and sometimes people have, are not, they can't praise God there. And, and, it, but it, and it's not a fiery punishment, but it, it's, it's, and I think it's probably a metaphor for like whatever death is, it's kind of not great. And, and he says, please don't abandon us there. 
So you do have hints of resurrection. This very Yeah. So they don't have a full-blown mythology of Sheol like the Greeks would have of okay. Hades or the Zoroastrians would have of their their hells and yeah. all of that. It's it's pretty vague and gloomy and and silent and it's not really and and I think they're just quite agnostic about it actually and so much so that even the Sadducees didn't believe there's a resurrection right because right? okay. they were strictly looking at the first five books of the Bible the, the, the Torah and it doesn't say anything okay so they're not getting any theology from the Psalms and so on whereas the Pharisees are like quite open to even the Babylonian ideas and, and okay. Enoch was the most one of the most popular books of the first century Jews is, which is all really into the whole fire and stuff and it's like yeah they brought that back from Babylon and that's not all bad because they also brought back the, a clear idea of resurrection from Babylon okay so Jesus goes yeah. and sets the captives free because descends into Hades yep like the Creed Nicene Creed says yep were those people there for they obviously were there mm -hmm. waiting for Jesus to come blow it up open the gates and then lead all the people out were they there for millennium? Well, we're, yeah, 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 yeah. Was time, time there? What does there like, mean? Pass like that, or <laughs> what, did they what, wait around? But gosh, we have another yeah, yeah. twenty-two thousand, you know, thousand. Right, years exactly. Ago. I think you've uncovered the problem. What does how long mean in death, and what does the there mean? That, so wherever it is, <laughs> it's, where, what does wherever mean? And so I think I think that here's the truth of it: is whatever death is. Um, we've constructed stories to help us picture it, but we mustn't literalize those stories as if it's a literal place. So in the early churches are really clear about this. It's not a place, it's not a thing, but we talk that way because it helps us to imagine that it's not good or that God, Jesus can go there and come back. But, um, but I think they, we need to understand that, the, that these are mythologies and that they did understand their mythologies. And what a mythology is, is not, we think in modern terms, mythology means not true. Oh no, of course it's true. But what a mythology is, is it's a story we construct to try to convey truth. So, so death might just be non-being, whatever, but we're gonna construct a story that says it's, like you're not enjoying the presence of God and Jesus wants you to. So he goes there to get you from, you know. So we're using these metaphor, spatial metaphors that are really problematic, but we're not embarrassed to because it's a magnificent way of telling the truth. Like a parable. Is the parable of the prodigal son literally, do we all go into actual pig pens? Is it an actual person? Was this a family Jesus? No, no, no. But is it true? Totally true. It's just, but it, it's a story we tell to tell the truth. So what are we, what's the question here? We're going back to... What about the people who died before Christ? Mm -hmm. So the way, <laughs> the way the apostle Peter tells it in his epistles is really fascinating. Um, and you get, you, so you have, what you have is in the New Testament, you get snippets and after the New Testament, um, they tried to put the, new te the, the, the snippets together into a story form, which is like Gospel of Nicodemus and some of these things, which aren't literally true, but it's, they're trying to gather the scriptures that paint a picture, okay? So what, 
what you have in, in the early church, they're trying to, they, they know that when Jesus died, he goes to there and to rescue who? So some treated it as he goes to rescue the faithful, those who in faith believed him in the future. So when Ephesians says that Christ goes into the lower parts of the earth and he brings back this parade of captives, it's like, why are they even captives? Mm -hmm. I thought Elijah went up to, in the chariot. Um, What's that about? Um, And even like, while Jesus is still alive on earth, before his death and resurrection, there's Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, so they're with the Lord somehow. And then when the witch of Endor calls Saul or Samuel, Sam, and there's Samuel, it's like, wait a minute, okay, so, so was he a captive? So you've got this question. When Jesus goes to redeem the captives, is it only the faithful who have died and are waiting for the resurrection? Waiting, time. Mm-hmm. And, and Peter goes further and he's like, actually, when he, he goes to, to, to uh, the place of the dead, he preaches, and the Greek word is evangelizes the dead, hmm. who, whose spirits, who, who were judged in the flesh at the, at, at the flood. So what he's doing is he's picking the worst of the worst. He's not picking Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not picking Moses and David. And he's picking like the people who perished in the flood and Jesus goes and evangelizes them. That's what Peter says. And then what he, this is the crazy thing. So he, so he preaches to them and then, and then what it says, now Peter's already used this language, that Christ was judged in the flesh and made alive in the spirit to describe his death and resurrection. It says that when Jesus goes to those guys, those who were judged in the flesh, the flood, are made alive in the spirit. And that, and so, be, and here's the fun part. So Peter's picturing this. Jesus goes into Hades or wherever, preaches to these day guys, they come back with him, and that makes the flood their baptism. And you're like, what? I mean, so it's bonkers, <laughs> and somehow it's metaphorical, right? So, but, but what it does for me, okay, so what's the truth housed in this mythology? The truth is that death has been beaten and Christ's resurrection, um, Romans 5 and and Corinthians also, it's like that as in Adam all died, so in Christ all are made alive. Mm -hmm. In in Christ's death, he really does something real to undo the power of death and release us from fear of it. And so we have this incredible hope um, in, in, in for salvation. And that's past, present, future. It's past, past all present. mankind, not just yep. those of us lucky enough to be born in the AD. This is really uh, important. Yeah. That, so the important thing is that somehow in the death and resurrection of Christ, that whole, that whole passion narrative, then the, the church would use a Latin phrase. It becomes the axis mundi. That means the axis of the universe Time and space is no longer to be seen as a, time, as a, a linear, temporal timeline. The whole thing now begins to revolve around the cross. And so before, what is before? And it comes out in the liturgy when they will say things like, 
This one, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, created the universe. So they're not thinking, well, before he's incarnate, he's just the disembodied word and he created. They're like, no, this one, this man, this Lord Jesus Christ. How can you say that Jesus Christ, the God man, created the universe when he's not incarnate yet? They'd go, what do you mean yet? Well, before, what do you mean before? None of, all of that's irrelevant now because he's the axis mundi, the cross, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world has. And so they don't think of it as he, now going forward in time. They're like, no, coming down before from eternity. And he's the sin of the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly it. So that, I, I, you know, this is not cutting edge. I'm just recycling Athanasius and the early okay. fathers who actually gathered the New Testament, declared the doctrines of the deity of Christ, mm-hmm. the Trinity, all of that. Yeah. Do we have a, I mean, people are coming in, but we could carry on a bit if you want, because you're so fun. Good. Do <laughs> uh, you guys have any questions? Can we no? start from the beginning? I thought Barb had a, <laughs> uh, some input. Where's Barb and Barb? Did we, we cover most of your stuff? I think we covered stuff? a lot of stuff here. Let's see. If you, if, I, yeah, I do want to say if like a thing that comes up is okay. This sounds like universalism. It's like, well, you know what? Christ's salvation is universal. There's, and the if 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 all will be saved, all will be saved because of Christ alone. And that does require a response. Okay. Here's the issue. Death is defeated, and now Jesus Christ holds the keys of death in Hades. Okay. That means death isn't a time bomb. His mercy doesn't endure till you die. His mercy endures forever. His loving kindness doesn't isn't interrupted by the event of death. His loving kindness is everlasting. So are we saying Jesus doesn't matter? No. Are we saying a response is unnecessary? No. Are, what we are saying is that death's not the deadline. That raises the question, well, then why share our faith if they're all going to be it's like, haven't you met Jesus? He's the most wonderful person in the universe. Why? Oh, they'll be in anyway. No, people need him now. They're already experiencing the hell of perishing. Right? And so that'd be the second thing. Don't we know how Jesus, how wonderful Jesus is? And also, don't we know how badly people need him today? Now is the now they need to hear him. Not not because death is cutting them off, but now they need to hear him because now they need him. Yeah, now they need him. Well, and I think what what this whole idea has helped me with is I used to think, okay, life is this dot yep. on eternity, and eternity is this ever new line. So really, this life is nothing. But the more I understand this, this life on Earth is God's amazing creation yeah and it really matters it to him. matters a lot your life matters it matters That's to right. him and the whole reason jesus came is so that we might have life eternal which really translated means that you might know him because yes. he then says this is eternal life that you know me that's exactly not it. wait till you die and then go to heaven and so it's not like we're enduring it's god really cares about people living abundant life now with the very intentions that he had when he created Eden in the first place yeah. Yeah, I I 100% agree. This also makes sense of some of the early liturgies that talk about this life as the Hades, not death. Huh. But he has come down. Actually, I 
I, I won't look it up right now, but it's so, it, it, there's, you've got this liturgical hymn from the early church that says this. He has come down to Hades and put us on his shoulders and lifted it all up to himself. He's not talking after death. He's talking now that he has turned this world or, and is turning this world from Hades into the eternity of knowing him. So, so why come to Christ? So you can enter eternal life yeah. now. Yeah. Well, so this, this is interesting how this, this kind of culminates in Ephesians 2.5 says that, you know, that we were reconciled in him before the fall of the world or some translate that before the fall of man. Okay. And then Ephesians 1.10 that says all were reconciled and everything culminates in him. Mm. And we haven't, I don't, Mike, you haven't taught on that yet, but. What's that concept, apostasis or something like that, where everything God reconciles, everything ultimately back to him? Because that's where it seems like if death and Hades is gone and Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades, then really all of this is is coming to a moment where it's all coming back to the creator. Yeah. So when I grew up, and this probably be true for you, our understanding of the of the end. It was so driven by our ideas of the book of Revelation, right? Yeah. Which they were still debating whether it should be in the Bible in 395. So they've already determined the creeds by then. So there's basically that tells you they didn't get their end times theology from Revelation at all. Ultimately, they said, yeah, Revelation belongs. But that's not what they're picturing when they're talking this stuff. What they're picturing is three things. Um, the Greek word apokatastasis is, is, a, is a Greek word from a sermon that Peter preaches in Acts 3, where he says, now Christ is waiting. Christ, heaven is holding Christ until the apokatastasis of all things, the, the restoration of all things. That's the end game. So they're not, they're not talking about until the division of all things into heaven and hell. Okay? They're talking about a, a new heavens and new earth where everything's restored. So that's Acts 3. Second, if you want to picture it, they didn't picture anything in Revelation like Armageddon and Left Behind and blah, blah, blah. But the, 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 the picture they used for it was the Mount of Transfiguration, where the Old Testament saints like Elijah and Moses and the New Testament saints like Peter, James, and John are gathered as Christ transfigures. The light of his glory begins to shine from him and transfigures the whole cosmos. That's what you're supposed to picture. So when I hear second coming now, I picture the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, maybe that was the second coming. If not, not that it's done, but we're looking outside of time now. We're getting a pre, a time machine view of this thing. And then the third thing that they really focused on, First Corinthians 15, is a much more powerful telescope into the future than Revelation. Even Revelation 21 and 22, the last chapters, it's a process. People are still coming into the city. They're having their they're getting healing from the leaves in the city and the kings are coming in. Okay, that's pretty, that's the age to come. First Corinthians 15 talks about after that, the end of the ages, God will be all in all. Christ will, there will be no more enemies and Christ will hand the kingdom over to his father and God will be all and in all. And, and, and so Origen and Gregory of Nyssa and St. Macrina the Younger, all of these guys, they're, they're like, that's our vision of the future, a future where God is a one and all, and, um, but, but accomplished in Christ. So it's not a 
pop universalism or cheap pluralism. It's like, no, this is a very, very high Christology, the Christ, theology of Christ. He's the, he's the, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is also the cosmic Christ who fills the universe and then hands it over to his dad. It, it, it's like it all gets better. Mm. It all gets better, and it, it takes away this, this fear of uncertainty when you begin to understand that, wow, God's a really good God. Mm-hmm. He's orchestrating all these things for our good, for his good and bringing it all together. Yeah. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. Like, what if he's able to do it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Robin Perry, he says, uh, he's a Brit- this British theologian. He's yeah. like, if, if God is all powerful, he can do it. If God is all loving, he wants to do it. If he can do it and he wants to do it, he will do it. And, uh, but he says it with a British accent and a nicer smile. It's, it's, I, I just feel that's wonderful. And it, well, why I might stop short of calling this universalism is because in principle, the hu- human freedom is never removed. However, it is, Maximus the Confessor will say, but it is healed. What would a healed human will do when it sees Jesus as he is okay. without the toxins of the world of flesh and the devil lying because it can't at the, the final judgment yeah. when we when every eye shall see him what are we going to do well, well Paul tells you every knee will bow yeah. and every tongue will confess and will worship you know it's a, and, and well, it doesn't confess mean agree even stronger it's like baptismal confession wow. if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved it's like because the way I used to see that was man you will be on your knees and you will be admitting that you blew it that Jesus is Lord and you missed it yeah. versus I preached that man with gritted teeth I used to say <laughs> you will either bend on bow your knee by on your own or it'll be a bit knocked down <laughs> Uh, it's well, just not helpful. But, okay, but but imagine that. And just yeah. in closing, if if every knee shall bow yeah. and every tongue, like you said, confess. Would you say in agreement and baptismal agreement that baptismal Jesus confession? Lord, yeah, yeah. That they actually believe. Then that means God's leading every human being back to Himself and who they are. Yeah. So I think, what if Jesus was right? Here's a proposal. Red letters. And if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And and frankly, I'm uncomfortable with that. Partly because the word draw there is like a fishnet. It is like virtually drag. It's a, he won't violate our will, but there is a, it's going to be real. Love is compelling. You know, you can't, if, if you ever fell in love, did you really choose that? <laughs> it's more like, <gasps> your breath's taken, right? Amen? Okay. 